that he is risen. Uh, he is risen indeed. All right, so we're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning. We're going to uh, take a break from Mark and look at the, the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, I thought this would be a, a good place to turn this morning because of the juxtaposition of a few things that we're going to talk about on this strange Easter. Um, this is our, our COVID Easter 2020. Um, we're going to look back on this Easter for the rest of our lives going, how strange was that? In some cases, how sad was that? Even though it's Easter, time where we rejoice and we shout, hallelujah. Some are wrestling with incredible sadness. Some are mourning. Some are feeling acutely the real presence of the shadow of death. Uh, and so I think this morning, let's, let's give our attention to John 11. I'm going to read verses 17 through 35. And so uh, let's honor the Lord's word. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to meet him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning. And we pray that you would show us more clearly your power over sin and sickness, and yes, even death itself. 
We pray that we would rejoice in the resurrection. We pray that we would be honest with you about our, our, our sorrow and our sadness. Thank you that you welcome our entire heart, our entire being, and you transform us entirely. Would you give us that hope in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, well, as we look at just this portion of a, of a long uh, account that John records for us in, in John 11, uh, I want to start, first of all, with just the facts of this, this account uh, that happened you know, in Bethany, as, as we were looking at last week, right? Uh, as Jesus was moving toward Jerusalem and, and just before the triumphal entry, uh, his basic stomping ground, the place where he was, was spending the night as he was in, that, uh, in, in Jerusalem that last week uh, before his, his death and resurrection, uh, the home base was Bethany, this place. And so uh, these are the facts of what happened in Bethany uh, with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who was sick and who died. And then we'll talk about faith and hope, and we'll also talk about grief and anger. But let's talk about the facts about uh, Lazarus's resurrection. So the first thing we need to see in verse 17 is very clearly John wants his readers to, to not be in any confusion about the fact that Lazarus was dead, that he had already been in the tomb four days. So when Jesus, who was traveling and was actually on the far side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, um, you know, not just hours, but days away, and he had learned that Lazarus was sick, and, uh, and he deliberately delayed coming to Bethany until he heard confirmation that Lazarus had died. This didn't catch Jesus off guard. It was actually part of his sovereign and even merciful plan to reveal God's glory to his followers. It would not end in death but that people would see the glory of God on display, specifically the glory of God over death uh, in the resurrection of Lazarus. So four days had passed, right? Three days meant that there was absolutely no hope of anybody being resuscitated. Uh, four days was just you know, completely beyond any, any hope. Um, even three days was beyond that hope too. And they had called in, um, you know, people from Jerusalem who were coming to help this apparently prominent family grieve. Uh, they, they appear to be wealthy because they, they throw a feast uh, in John chapter 12. We hear about this feast that, you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are throwing. This is the same Mary who anoints Jesus with the expensive perfume, um, so expensive that it's compared to a year's worth of wages, which in our you know, day would be tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, this is a, a prominent, influential family, meaning that the entire village of Bethany has come to grieve, that people from Jerusalem have come to grieve. There's no shortage of witnesses to the facts going on about Lazarus' death and then his subsequent resurrection. So, these witnesses are all coming. They've even hired professional mourners, uh, those who were 
you know, consoling Mary that, that we, we just read about. Professional mourners sounds kind of weird to us, but I want you to think of them as sort of like uh, the, the, the funeral directors. And they are simply facilitating people's grief. And these people were, were professionals. They, they've been around death. They know death when they see it. And furthermore, you know, Mary, as you, you can read in the, the extended account, if you want to look at it, when, when Jesus comes to the tomb, Mary's concerned because she thinks there's even going to be an odor. Like, it's just that evident to everybody. Lazarus is dead. Those are the facts. But Jesus raises Lazarus, and it's on display for all of these witnesses, all of these professionals, all of these experts. And Mary and Martha are eyewitnesses, and John's readers, you know, presumably could even go to them. Uh, they could go to Lazarus himself um, and, and hear about his account. They could go to the entire village of Bethany. They could go to all these people in Jerusalem. These are facts, uh, the facts of this account of Lazarus's resurrection. And yet, um, there are still plenty of liberal scholars, have been for, for years, centuries even, who have tried to discredit uh, this account, really all of the miracles of Jesus. Uh, there's just this presupposition that the supernatural is impossible. And so it's, it's just common, you know, for people who don't believe in the supernatural to say that this is some kind of uh, theory or, or, you know, wishful thinking, some kind of ideology, uh, that it's not true and it's, it's not factual. So that's what liberal scholars have been saying, like I said, for centuries. But nowadays, nowadays, like it just doesn't even seem to, to matter much uh, because truth doesn't seem to matter much uh, in, in our age. Uh, truth seems relative. It's not so much that you have to prove something true or false. It's just, if it's true for you, good for you. But don't impose what you think is true on other people. You know, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. If they overlap, okay, we can be friends. If they don't overlap, then, you know, well, you go be with your people, I'll be with my people, and we'll all have our own narratives of what's real and what's factual, and what's true. And the problem with this view of truth is that it's false. It's a view of truth that's false. This truth is not only false, it's, it's deadly. This view is deadly. I, like, so you just have to uh, go to Florida and, and realize that's not an overstatement because you've got you know, students who are there on spring break and you know, they're exercising their right to party and to be together despite the fact that the nation's kind of on this lockdown and, and trying to keep everybody home so we're not spreading the coronavirus. But the interviews with uh, those students that at least I saw, perhaps you saw, uh, they didn't say it in these words, but it was very evident, you know, as they're sharing their opinions about why, they, why it doesn't matter to them, is that for them, uh, the coronavirus was somebody else's truth. Uh, that's old people's truth. That's sick people's truth. It's not, it's not true for young people. And so, you know, they have this different view of truth. But then, go talk to the families who are affected by those who are infected from those who, who came back from spring break. And 
talk to the families who aren't just dealing with sick family members, but who are dealing with, with death. And then you realize it's not an overstatement to say that that view of truth is not just false, but even deadly. So if something's true, it's true for everyone. And if something's false, then it's, then it's false for everyone. C.S. Lewis once said that, uh, that um, you know, truth and, and falsehood and um, you know, right and wrong, these things are clues to the meaning of the universe. And, um, and I, Lewis read some of G.K. Chesterton. I wonder if he enjoyed Chesterton's Father Brown Mysteries. Uh, so Chesterton was this theologian, but he also wrote some fiction of Father Brown, uh, an unassuming and very underestimated priest. And uh, the first story called uh, the, the Blue Cross, there's a notorious arch criminal, arch jewel thief named Flambeau. And Flambeau constantly evaded the police. Uh, he would do heist after heist after heist, stealing all of these you know, precious objects, precious jewels, and the police were just always on his heels, but they could never catch him. Uh, and Flambeau hears about a conference in London, a clergy conference. And so he dresses as a monk, and he is after the blue cross, this jeweled cross, priceless jeweled cross, right? But Flambeau runs into the unassuming and underestimated Father Brown, and Father Brown uncovers this master thief's identity and strategy. So what tipped Father Brown off was the fake priest, Flambeau you know, had dressed as this fake priest, what tipped Father Brown off was this conversation that, that he and this fake priest are having on a bench overlooking you know, this incredible landscape. The sun has just set, the stars are starting to come out, and Chesterton describes them like solid jewels in the sky. And what, what tipped Father Brown off to the fake priest's identity was that the fake priest didn't really believe in ultimate truth. The fake priest said, yes, these modern unbelievers appeal to their reason, but who can look at those millions of worlds, you know, the stars in the sky, and not feel that there may well be wonderful universes above us where reason is utterly unreasonable? Like, how do we know that there aren't universes where what we think is true isn't true, and what we think is fact isn't fact? Well, after Flambeau's arrest, after Father Brown uncovers the truth, um, Father Brown explains to this bewildered jewel thief what tipped him off. And he said, the reason and justice grip the remotest and loneliest star. Reason and justice are universal, cosmologically universal. Look at those stars. Don't they look as if they were single diamonds and sapphires? Think the moon is a blue moon, a single elephantine sapphire. But don't fancy that all that frantic astronomy would make the smallest difference to the reason and justice of conduct. On plains of opal, under cliffs cut out of pearl, you would still find a notice board, thou shalt not steal, he says to the jewel thief, right? So we might say, um, to use Father Brown's 
language, we might say that fact and truth grip the remotest and oldest village, even Bethany. A village like Bethany outside of ancient Jerusalem. So either Lazarus was raised or he wasn't. Either it's true or it's false. Either it happened or it didn't. And if it did, then this man, uh, this God-man, dramatic lighting, uh, this God-man, this man who destroyed death deserves to be heard. So what do we need to hear from Jesus? Uh, in, in this account, he says some startling things. So in verse 23, Jesus says to you know, Martha, your brother will rise again. And really, Jesus wasn't telling Martha anything new at this point. She already believed in the resurrection. She says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, let's just give Martha some credit. That's a remarkable statement of faith. You know, some want to read into Martha's words and actions um, that she's angry and upset with Jesus. Uh, they assume that she's marching out to Jesus to give him a piece of her mind, how he was late, you know, and that if he had been here, my brother would not have died. She wants to blame Jesus, you know, for Lazarus' death. I, I really don't think that is what's going on. Look, she's professing her faith in Jesus. She knows that he has power to heal, and she's trusting Jesus that whatever he asks of his father, that he is going to she's going to trust that he's going to bring a satisfying conclusion to what's happened here. She's just putting herself into his hands, which is what we all need to do. And she's affirming her hope in the resurrection at the last day. She, she doesn't have a category yet for Lazarus being raised right now. She believes, like others you know, who are faithful to the Scriptures, uh, what the prophet said, like Daniel chapter 12, that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, you know, the prophets would speak about this day that was coming when the, the dead would be raised, you know, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. That's not a new belief that the resurrection is going to happen. What is new is what Jesus says to her in response, right? Jesus says something really remarkable. He doesn't just affirm her hope in this day when, when the Lord is going to bring a general resurrection. Instead, he doesn't, he doesn't say, good for you, Martha, you're right to believe in that. He says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Uh, that's a great response. So Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the embodiment of your hope that things are going to get better. Uh, I know you've probably been watching uh, some of the almost daily press conferences, presidential press conferences, right? So President Trump gives us an update, Dr. Fauci gives us an update, others give us updates. So imagine Dr. Fauci 
coming to the podium and explaining, you know, what's going on with the curve and, you know, what we need to continue to do. And he says, but really what I want you to take away from, from this moment on is as we all hope for a cure, as we all hope for resolution to the coronavirus, I just want you to know, I am the cure. Can you imagine Dr. Fauci saying such a thing? I am the cure. That's better, thank you. <laughs> right? We wouldn't know what to do with that kind of statement. We might think he's crazy. Um, and, and so it would need some unpacking to be sure. So Jesus is reassuring Martha that, that things are going to come to the satisfying conclusion. She doesn't really know what to do with this statement, so she just sort of says what she does know to be true about Jesus. Uh, I know that you're the Christ. That's what I can affirm. Uh, and, and we just want to trust you to, to bring a solution to this problem of death and sin and sickness, right? But that's not all that Jesus said to Martha. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. So when Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life, is he just using uh, synonyms? Or is that Hebrew parallel poetry? That's, that's a, a poetic uh, pattern in, in the Psalms. You, you see things that are sort of uh, repeated, and, and that's a literary device. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he being a poet? No, there's more here. Jesus is not only saying, I'm the embodiment of your ultimate hope that those who have God's mercy and his favor are going to be raised to, to new life. He's not only saying that I am the one who is going to get you into heaven when you die. He's also saying, I am your life right now. I'm your life right now. He's guaranteeing to those who believe in him eternal life today that we can enjoy Union with Christ, union with God as a foretaste of that eternal blessed communion with God. And that starts now. Um, Jesus says, everyone who lives right now and believes in me shall never die. And what Jesus says to Mary is, do you believe this? Do you believe the present tense implications of Jesus being the resurrection and the life? Uh, D.A. Carson, uh, theologian and, and commentator, uh, who's been a great help to me in our Mark series, actually, uh, he writes that Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. And so I'll ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus who has come to give us life right now? To not, not just this abstract you know, notion of a resurrection sometime in the distant future, but a, a vital living relationship with him right now. Do you believe this? We all look forward to the day when, you know, the coronavirus is under control. We're, we're hoping in that day. We don't know when it's going to be. 
but we're not just sort of sitting around drumming our fingers until that day. We're, we're doing the best we can to, to stay connected, to enjoy communion with one another. We're even doing this right now. And that's, that's sort of what we're talking about in light of the resurrection. Yeah, we're hoping in that day, but we're not just sort of sitting on our hands waiting for Jesus to return. We can have a relationship with him right now. And even though there, there feels like it's, it's not as close as it, it's going to be, it's not as intimate as it will be, but we're not content to, to just not have anything. And that's where the Holy Spirit dwells our, in our hearts and gives us this relationship with Jesus who truly fills us now. We get his kingdom now, not just in the future. Jesus gets us into heaven when we die, but he also gets heaven into us now while we live. I like how Peter, who was there at the raising of Lazarus, he puts it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope with present tense implications. Yes, it's got a a future hope that, that we have, but it's also for, for today. Well, let's wind down uh, because this account with, with Lazarus is not just about our hope and our, our joy as we anticipate the resurrection, as we enjoy communion and union with Jesus right now. The resurrection also invites us to share with God our grief our sadness, even our anger. Easter is a time of celebration, right? It's a a time when we shout hallelujah, but it's also a time when when we feel anger and sadness. And we go, what? Easter doesn't seem to to match those categories. Uh, Yeah, happiness I get, joy I get, but anger and sadness? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus weeping here at the tomb of Lazarus. Um, Look at him being deeply moved in verse 33, uh, right? So we see that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, Deeply moved, we, we sort of want to think that means that he was just full of pity and compassion for Martha and for Mary and for everybody there? It's not what it means. The root of that word means to be angry and upset. It means to be indignant even. Um, Elsewhere, when you run across it in in the Gospels in the New Testament, it's Jesus sternly warning people about things. There's an anger, uh, an indignant uh, tone in his voice. It's used outside of the Bible to describe horses when they're agitated and their eyes are, you know, wide open and their nostrils are flaring. That's the word that's used here. Jesus is deeply moved and John repeats it again in verse 38. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see then Jesus deeply moved again um, came to the tomb. So Jesus came to the dead man's grave and faced his greatest enemy, death. And he came to the tomb and he came face to face with his own fate. 
a tomb. And he did not acquiesce. He was not timid. He did not go gentle into that good night. He was stern. He was angry. He stood outside of Lazarus's tomb with his eyes wide and his nostrils flaring, and he goes toe-to-toe with death. He's angry. Does angry Jesus disrupt you? We're going to see more of Jesus' anger next week when he goes into the temple and clears out the temple. Yeah, I understand. Angry Jesus makes us uncomfortable. Because we, when we experience anger, it's often destructive. But when Jesus experiences anger, when he feels anger, it's constructive. Uh, anger can be a gift. Uh, it's, it's grace from God to help us do hard things. Anger can help us overcome fear. Anger can help us push past pain and suffering. Anger can get us across a threshold that would otherwise be impossible. Uh, The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. Well, it wasn't just joy that got Jesus across that threshold. It was anger too. Anger at sin, anger at sickness, anger at death. We ought to give thanks for the anger of Jesus. Uh, John Calvin in his institutes, uh, I'm sorry, in his commentary uh, on this passage says, therefore, we need not wonder that Jesus again groans, deeply moved, you know, uh, indignant, stern, angry. For the violent tyranny of death, which he had to conquer, is placed before his eyes. Now, some explain this groan, Jesus' anger, that he was offended at the unbelief of which we have spoken. But another reason appears to me far more appropriate, namely that he contemplated the transaction itself rather than the men. The, The transaction. What transaction? The transaction of the cross. The transaction of the cross where Jesus would take our place. Where he would exchange places with us. That's the transaction. He would become a sin offering for our sin. He would die a sinner's death, my death and your death. And that he would give to those who believe in him, who repent and confess their sins and trust him, Give them justification. Give them absolution. Give them acquittal. Give them pardon. And that's what we enjoy because of this transaction. Jesus took our place. He took our sin on himself. He went to the grave in our place. He took the curse of God on himself in order that we might receive God's blessing. That we might receive God's commendation. That we might receive God's welcome. Because the other part of that transaction was not just Jesus taking our sin, but Jesus giving us his goodness, his rightness, his righteousness, his record of a perfect human being. 
the ideal human being, the, the humanity that God intended us to be. Jesus lived that out completely, and he transfers that. That transaction is applied to us by faith in who he is and being united to him in love. Do you believe that? Do you believe this? If so, then Jesus promises you eternal life, not, not just in the future, as glorious as that is, but now. And, and we can experience that union with him now. The one who is angry at sin and sickness and death and the one who is sad too. Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Everybody knows it. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He was angry and he was sad at the tomb of Lazarus. He's grieved because he's looking around at everybody and seeing how sad they are, looking at Mary and Martha and Lazarus. John tells us twice in this passage how much he loved them, like specifically tells us that he loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. And he grieves with us. And he grieves with you. Even though he knew his purpose was to demonstrate the power of the resurrection over Lazarus, and he knew exactly what he was going to do, he still allowed himself to feel that sadness, and he wept outside of that tomb. And we can also go to the Gethsemane. Even though he knew how the resurrection would play out, even though he had told his disciples on three separate occasions on the way to Jerusalem that the Son of Man would suffer and die and be raised, he's still weeping in the garden. We live in this strange in-between. We're celebrating this strange Easter. where We live in the light of the resurrection and simultaneously in the shadow of death. We don't want people to die. We don't want to die and so we're separated and we're distant and yet we are worshiping the one who defeated death and, and what the theologians have, have how they've described this is the now and the not yet or I like how um, David Sawyer reminded us uh, back around Christmas time the uh, the already and the still more there's more to come Jesus has defeated death and he continues to advance and and move forward with his kingdom so until he returns to make things new. Uh, yeah, we rejoice in the resurrection. But, but we don't have to listen to those who tell us that we should always be joyful and never sorrowful. Like, I get it. Jesus has given us a living hope. He's given us this joy unspeakable and full of glory, and we need more of that. That's not the same as saying, that we don't also have moments where it's a right and proper time to weep or get angry over sin and sickness and death. Jesus did. And he was joyful and sorrowful. And we can be too. So as this Easter, particularly, you know, this, this COVID Easter of 2020, um, this, the world is, is reeling uh, from, from disappointment, from this pandemic. It's right uh, and good to feel sadness and even anger. We don't have to be indifferent to our enemy. But it's also appropriate, particularly this Easter, as the world is reeling from this pandemic and from disappointment and sickness and sadness, it's right and good to rejoice. And the one who forgives our sins, 
who heals our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, and who crowns us with steadfast love and with mercy. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we, we give you thanks for your steadfast love and your mercy. We give you thanks that you came to walk with us and to be with us in this world that is full of sin and sickness and death. Then indeed, you would taste it and, and, and succumb to it in our place. But that it would not keep you there, that you have the power and the, the righteousness and the holiness to defeat death and to raise us with you. And so that is our hope even now, even today. Lord, and we pray that you would help us to be faithful as we, as we walk through the shadow of death, but at the same time rejoice in the power of the resurrection. Lord, as a congregation, would you help us to, to live in that tension, but also we pray in particular for several of our families. We pray uh, for...